0: a New Testament reading from the the Revelation to John. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the all men, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen." and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be honest, therefore, and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered, and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: The Gospel reading is from Luke chapter 22. Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you, Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you just as my Father has conferred on me a kingdom so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the gospel of the Lord.
2: Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, this morning in our worship, we've been singing, we've been praying, and reminding ourselves from one moment to the next that we exist in your presence, in you and ours, and so we are before you and you before us. And we ask by your spirit that indeed you would awaken our hearts and open our ears, that we would be people, persons, individuals in a community that hears what the spirit is saying to the churches. So meet us in this time uh, as we reflect on your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. So uh, we are looking at Revelation this uh, fall, the book of Revelation, and one of the things we've seen is that this is a book that Jesus has left the church at the very end of the Christian scripture, right, that gives us a series of last words about a variety of topics. And it's a book, really, that launches us into our present moment, right, into the season of waiting, into the spaces of suffering, into the spaces of joy in, in our life and in our world, as the church turns this sort of... This, this page from one chapter, one generation into the next. Now, it's interesting because Revelation is often a book that we think of or associate with sort of fearful things, right, scary things, right? Uh, you know, you, I, when, I was, when I was growing up in high school, the, the book that was sort of being read at the moment was, you know, Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. Now, that really is a page-turner, and it really sort of leads you to think, oh, I can't wait to read that, right? no. It's scary. Revelation is a book that Jesus gives the church to lead us in a life of faith so that we become individuals in the moment who take one step of faith after the next step of faith, that we live inside the space of his peace with us, his love for us, his presence to us. And so we are looking at this book this fall as we think about what, what does God want for us as a community in our time, in our day. We're not just sort of obsessing about some future that's out there, but rather reading it with a view to the moment now, our life now in this present life. Remember the aim of Scripture, we've said, is is that we would be drawn into deeper and further communion or life with God, that we would sort of have an enriched relationship with Jesus and also with one another now, not just later, right? There's a present moment focus. So here we are in these last words to uh, uh to the to the christian church and today we're looking at words that specifically have the topic of the church in them right uh, what is the church how are we to think about ourselves and in uh the book of revelation john is specifically thinking or has in mind we're told seven churches right seven communities of faith that are identified with seven cities in the roman province of asia right or modern-day turkey Now, there's a sense in which these churches become a kind of placeholder, if you will, right? Uh, You know, seven in Scripture is sort of this complete and whole number, and so we're almost certainly meant to understand that the range of descriptions, the range of experiences and struggle that John is describing, that Jesus is articulating about the church then, is is a similar range of experience that we're meant to think about in our own day in our own lives, in our own contexts. And so to do that, let's think about uh, the four words this morning. They all start with P. How about that? Uh, Place, presence, particularity, and promise. All right, place. These congregations are identified by place, right? They're identified by the cities in which these churches exist. Uh, So it's not like, uh, so if you think about the church in a city, it could have been comprised of a number of house churches. It could have been, but but these are regional spaces. These are contexts in which people have identified and believed something about the story of Jesus. They gather for worship with one another. And here, Jesus begins to address the churches inside of these seven different communities. Uh, These seven contexts, these seven places. Um, place is important, right? Uh, some of you, if you even described instead of Philadelphia, you know, we, we're all sort of Philadelphians in one sense, right? And, uh, but we live in different regions of Philadelphia. We live in different neighborhoods of Philadelphia. And so we also have different experiences of Philadelphia. Would that be fair to say? Place constructs the lives that we live in many, many ways. It's deeply shaping of how we live in the world and how we live in our life with God. There's always a contextual texture to a person's life with God. Always. It's unavoidable. Why? Because you are a human being. And you live with your feet on the ground in certain places and not other places. And you and I live with our feet on the ground inside of real relationships The last time I thought about relationships, they're pretty impactful on the way we live life. Place is hugely important. The body of Christ, the church is not an abstraction. So important. It's not a ghost. It's not hovering over the face of the earth in some way, but we are situated in real places, in real context, which doesn't mean that we're not intimately connected with the church throughout generations and throughout history and throughout time and throughout the world even now. There's a bond that we have with the churches of other places and other regions, but you live life in this place, here, on the ground. And so it's really important for us to begin to think about how these places impact the way we express our life with Jesus. So we read the the letter, the one letter uh, out of the seven that uh, is written to the church at Laodicea. Now, a little bit we know about the, the, the community of Laodicea is it was a prosperous city. It was known for its sort of high quality textiles and medical community. Perhaps there's some sort of speculation around those realities. It was a wealthy place. It was a very prosperous place. And as you read, read through this letter, what did you notice about the church? It reflected the prosperity of its place. It, it, it was comprised of those people who lived inside of those segments of society in some sense, right? Now, that's how the church emerges. It always emerges in a place and it always emerges among some demographic and we reflect the characteristics of the demographic that we're coming to faith out of. But Jesus really cares about what happens in the mix of our relationship with him. Laodicea was a wealthy place and the church reflects the prosperity and the wealth of its community. That's a given. Churches always reflect the communities that they're a part of. Our place in the world is important. Um, and Jesus' story comes to each of us inside of some type of a context. Now, the second word, presence. The presence that makes the gathered community in these places a church and not just a, you know, some social space, right? Some club, for example, or some enjoyable co- community even, is, is the presence of Jesus, we saw this last week when we read about John's sort of great vision of Jesus himself, right? We said that right at the, at the outset of the vision, there is this imagination of this temple space where heaven and earth connect, and the menorah is there with its seven branches, right? Remember? And the seven branches of the menorah reflect, right, the presence of the church before Jesus and Jesus' presence among the church. His presence alone defines us as a church. If he's here in our midst, we're the ecclesia, we're the gathered people of God. He's in our midst, we're in his midst, and it's so important in those moments that we recall that, that we understand that. And as you sort of track through that vision that John gave us last week, remember how he described his eyes? They're like a piercing flame. And we talked about how when you stare into someone's eyes, you know, it can be a moment of profound comfort and discomfort, right? Because someone sees you. They see you all the way down. And what John is telling us about Jesus, when he's in the midst of his church, is that he, is he, he gets you. He knows your story. All hearts are open. All desires known. No secrets are hidden from his gaze. He perceives you. He perceives us. So each of these letters, interestingly, opens with this kind of acknowledgement. Jesus sees and he knows their place. Ephesus, for example, he says, I know your works, your toil, your endurance. To the church at Smyrna, he says, I know your trials and your poverty. Uh, To Pergamum, I know where you dwell. To Thyatira, I know your works, your love, your faith. To Sardis, I know your reputation, but then interestingly, it's hollow. It's empty. To Laodicea, I know your works, not hot, not cold, tepid, lukewarm, not interesting. Jesus discerns the story of his church. He sees us. Right off, Jesus says something in in these letters that indicates he perceives the real community not speaking to them generically he sees them their story their real one he sees these communities in these distinct places their moments of ups their down moments their sorrows their joys their faithful aspects their unbelief their love their lack of love and just so on and so forth he sees the real people the real community of his people place is important presence is important because Christianity isn't merely cognitive work, it's not simply that we believe certain interesting truths about Jesus, however truthful those truths are, but that he perceives us. We're in relationship with him, Jesus among us, seeing us, a place and presence. But think about particularity, particularly the, the particularity of his words. Jesus speaks unique words to each of these congregations, to each of these communities of faith in these unique places, right? Uh, So I want you to think about your um, closest relationships for just a moment. Someone that you cherish, someone you love. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a brother or a sister, maybe it's an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent, maybe it's a neighbor or a colleague in the workplace or just a very dear friend in your life. Who, who do you cherish, right? You never, with those persons, confine or reduce your knowledge to them to a set of facts, right? If you do, you're kind of in a, in a weird place. Relationally, right? Think about it. If I'm married to Stacy, and so if you said, "Hey, Tuck, who's Stacy? What's she like?" Well, you know, Stacy was born in our Georgia. Stacy's Southern. Stacy is a mother of three. Her birthday is July the 30th, and I could just begin to list sort of factoids about Stacy, you know, but that doesn't tell you about. My relationship with Stacy. It doesn't even really tell me much about my relationship with Stacy, right? Why? Because a relationship is interactive, a relationship is engaging, a relationship connects, right? I am married to the person of Stacy. And here's what that means: it means that she and I, we, we interact truly. We interact. And it means something like this: that our mutual presence in one another's lives is interfering. We interfere with one another, right? My story, her story combine and interact in ways that don't leave us with just ourselves, but call us to something new. And it's always interfering. And sometimes I like that interference because I think, yeah, that's really great. You complete me, love. You're so awesome, rounding me out, all those rough edges. And then sometimes it's like, did you have to say that? That's the nature of relationships, and it is no different with God, no different. Jesus is present among his church, and what does that mean except you and I should expect his interference, (laughs) right? We should expect his particular interference as he knows our story And he knows where I struggle, he knows my ups, he knows my downs, he knows my joys, he knows my sorrows, he knows our joys, he knows our sorrows, he knows the context of Philadelphia. We should expect that Jesus should have some words for us that are sometimes profoundly encouraging because he gets that we're sort of in this low space and we need to be lifted. And sometimes he might be pushing on us a little bit, right? Interfering in the way that we might want to say, oh, did you have to say that? And when you read these letters to the churches, what's interesting and maybe hard is that you get a lot of did you have to say that moments, right? You read through these stories and it's like you can tell that he's encouraging them, that he's supporting them, that he's moving them forward. But there are also places where he just puts his finger on the particularity of their struggle with their life with him. There are ways in which they are yielding and assimilating and giving into the cultural context of their place. Its brokenness is creeping into the church. And Jesus begins to address that. He says something unique in all of these places. He knows their unique stories and he begins to interfere with those stories in a way of redirecting their stories. And guess what? He's aware of your story this morning. He knows your life. He knows the things that are hard in your life. He knows the places you have joy. He knows the things in your life where when you were confessing sin just a few moments ago as we were in that space in our worship service and we were in that place of private reflection and you were thinking, where did I revert back to broken ways of expressing my humanity? What did that look like for me this week? Jesus was present to your thoughts in that moment. As honest or as hiding as you may have felt in that space. He would interfere with us and he'd redirect us. One of the, uh, the founding stories of City Church that I've told periodically over the years is that we were thinking about moving to Philadelphia and starting a church in our great city. Uh, one of the stories that gave rise to it was with a friend of mine that I knew who was a PhD student. Uh, and he was living in Philadelphia, um, working on his PhD in the space of religious studies. And he had a lot of questions about faith and uh, because he was encountering uh, just a, a number of things in his in his sort of uh, research and his work as a, as a graduate student that led him to just say, I, I used to think this, but now I'm not so sure. And so there was this space of just, I've, got, I've just got a lot of questions, Tuck. And so we started talking about that, um, and I said, well, so you're in church, and you're asking people about your questions. And he just very simply said, so I go to the pastor, and I said, I said, hey, this, these are my questions. These are my doubts. These are my struggles. And the pastor said, well, I, you know, all I can say is that Jesus loves you. And you think, okay, Jesus loves me. That's nice to know. And we're talking, but it's not satisfying. Why? Because it feels a little bit like just a general blanket, <laughs> you know, Jesus loves you, but does Jesus love you in a particular way and that 's the beauty of jesus' love. His love is particular to your life. His love fits your life. and you know, one of the things when we when we do baptisms at city church and we baptize children or infants here, and one of the things that i' i 've sort of thought about over the years is that one of the things we're hopeful for with our children is what? It's just simply this, that with every stage of their human life, they would understand the particular love of Jesus for their life, wherever they are, whatever context they're in, right? And if you're a one-year-old, it looks one way. And if you're a two-year-old, it begins to look a little bit different because you're exploring your world in a new space and, and you can learn about Jesus' love inside of that new space. But when you're five, it's a new space again, right? And when you're 10, it's a new space again. And when you're 15, it's a new space again. The world, what? It gets more and more complex. Does Jesus' love get more and more complex for you? The particularity of his love. So when you think about your life this morning, what does his particular love look like for you? What does he say? What does he want to interfere with? Where does he think you're sort of leaning into the wisdom of this world and not the wisdom that he has to offer you? What does his particular love look like in your life this morning? These letters tell us it's a very particular love. It fits your life where you are, wherever that is. Jesus engages our real stories. And in these seven letters, we see his interference in a very particular way. For Laodicea, the people say, well, you know, we're fine. We're doing great. The budget, the church budget is awesome. You know, we tithe. It's just so great. You know, life's good. We're wealthy. We're prosperous. We don't really have any needs. I can't think of any right off the hand. But then, what does Jesus say about them? Well, actually, you don't see yourself so clearly. <laughs> well, you're you're spiritually naked. <laughs> Did you know that you're spiritually naked? You are spiritually naked. You're spiritually blind. Uh, you're spiritually poor. You're not tracking inside of the reality of God's kingdom. Some other reality is governing what you see and what you clothe yourself with. What would it look like if you were to buy my gold refined in fire? Jesus sits before this. Like that's the invitation that he sort of situates in front of Laodicea. It's a very particular invitation. Look, wrong gold, folks. Come for my gold. Buy linen from me, maybe so that you'll be clothed in the priestly garments that I'm clothed in, and you'll exist in the presence of God, clothed in beautiful arraignment because of the love of Jesus. Buy eye salve. Remember, it was a medical community, perhaps. By eye salve from me so your eyes will be opened and you'll see finally. Remember Jesus' words about wealth, where your treasure is, there your heart is. In other words, inside of this wealthy community of Laodicea is a community that is conformed to the wisdom of its place, not God's kingdom. And Jesus invites them to not be conformed, but transformed by the renewing of their minds in Christ. So becoming a community that's re-aimed in their worship to Jesus and his promises, the things he promises, and not just the things that they want... That they wouldn't live inside of the short game of worldly wealth, but they would actually become radically generous in the way they hold the wealth they possess, that the values and ways of God would change the way they live with their things. That's the picture that he sets before them. In Ephesus, the problem is that their love has grown cold, right? They've lost their first love. In Pergamum, it seems to be that they're indifferent to bad teaching and they're just listening to some really wrong theological ideas. In Thyatira, it looks like this struggle has more to do with sort of ethical and moral questions of their day and of their particular place and city. And they seem to be, the church seems in that space, to be sort of just following the wisdom the ethical wisdom of their community itself and not letting Jesus sort of impact the way they think about their moral life Sardis has become an apathetic place and Laodicea as we said has accommodated to the luxury of wealth place presence in very particular words but also promise in each of these letters, Jesus redirects the gaze of their heart and their eyes and their whole bodies toward the promise of his coming kingdom, right? Toward the promise of his coming kingdom. In Laodicea, right, it's the promise that when you, you will sit on my throne. In other words, if you live in relation to my story, the crucified one, the risen one, the enthroned one, you will be with me in the heavenly throne room. I mean, so Jesus is redirecting them. He's calling them to this other promise. He redirects them, right, towards a kind of repentance. In other words, that they would begin to let go of whatever the wisdom is that they're sort of attracted to or holding on to or caught in and seek to live by the wisdom of the gospel, that they would sort of embrace the story of Jesus as their story, that they would turn their gaze, their posture, their movement from one direction to another. And you read through these letters, not only does Jesus point out these moments of hard relational engagement, right? He invites these listeners to become responsive. Listen to me. What is the Spirit saying to the church? Can you hear what the Spirit is saying to the church? And there's this risk that's associated here. We don't like it, but it's there, right? And you see it here in the letter to the Laodiceans, and it says what? You are lukewarm, and I will spit you out of my mouth. If you've grown up in the church, you've listened to that phrase in different times. And, you know, if you're a junior high, you like to spit, and you think that sounds kind of interesting and cool. But most of us are like, that sounds kind of gross. Maybe it sounds like vomit. And it's meant to help us to see that Jesus is so aware of something that's unsavory inside of the church community. Another place, he says that your lampstand is in danger. (laughs) It might be removed. Now think about this for just a moment. Not in individual terms. He is talking about the church in cities. If you track through the history of Christianity and the world, you discover that it does not move through the world progressively. You know what I mean by that? In other words, Jesus doesn't conquer the world progressively, one region and then another region and then another region and then another region, and all of the regions that have preceded it are just secure forever, but rather it's relational. The kingdom of God grows serially in the context of relationship, so it's always moving. Why? Because just because you had relationship doesn't mean the fire of that relationship maintains. Think about your friendships. Friendships. Do you ever grow distant from people that you love? Do you ever find yourself in places where you cut off one another? Do you ever find yourself where you don't understand that person that you thought of earlier in the service as well as you used to think you understood them? Every generation has to own its faith. Every city has to be renewed in faith. Every church has to be renewed in faith. Every community renewed in faith. Jesus just isn't interested in our legacies. He's interested in the vibrancy of our relationship with him. And what's really beautiful about these letters, as hard as some of that truth feels to us at times, is at every point what Jesus is inviting the church into is deeper relationship. He's pointing out hard things. He's saying hard things. Why? So that we would open up to him. Notice what he says here. Like Laodicea, right? Those whom I love, I discipline, right? I speak to you about real things in your life, in other words. Real hard things in your life where you want to say, stop speaking to me like that. Stop calling attention to that. But Jesus says, I do that. Why? Because I love you. I want you to know me. Then you have this beautiful metaphor of someone standing outside the door of a home, right? This isn't about, this is is not properly about the church versus the world. This is Jesus in the midst of his community, people that believe in him. And he says, I'm knocking on your door. Your door. Do you hear my voice? Will you open up? Have you ever had those moments when you finally just take your hand down? And in that space of relationship, what happens when you let your guard down with the person you love? What happens in that moment when you just stop being defensive and you stop being so self-protective and you stop... You know, just always having a defense for why you do what you do when you do what you do and it drives the other person crazy and you just sort of stop and you're present to one another. What happens in that moment? It is a moment of deep and profound vulnerable intimacy and that is what Jesus invites here. I'm at your door. I'm knocking. If you open up, I will come in. I am present to you. Why? So that we can sit and we can eat We can share a meal. We can have rich communal fellowship with one another. That's the aim of these letters. That's the aim of this whole book. This is relationship language, table fellowship language. Jesus isn't portraying himself as an intruder who's sort of going to knock the door down whether you want it down or not. He is knocking. Why? Because he loves you. He wants fellowship with you. He wants connection with you. He wants communion with his people, with his church. And so he's speaking words that fit the situation, words about, you know, truths that are interfering with that relationship, right? So that we might let our guard down because he's let his guard down. He's loved you in a vulnerable way if we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Eugene Peterson calls this pattern of of place, of presence, of particularity, and of promise, those aren't the words he uses, but he calls this pattern uh, a kind of spiritual direction that Jesus does with the church. What is spiritual direction? It's simply this. It's when you and I meet with individuals, usually with someone in the church who's we perceive usually to be more mature than us and maybe they are and maybe they're not. But the whole goal of the interaction is just very simply that I would become more aware of my life with God than I was before. And so Eugene Peterson looks at these letters. He says, You know, Jesus is doing a kind of spiritual direction with the church. In other words, he's wanting them to become more aware of his presence, more aware of his love, more aware of them in a way that draws them closer in to a kind of vulnerability they may not even have imagination for, but he does. And this is the work of the church. To have these kinds of love and relationship with God, with one another in which we are close enough to one another and we listen in on one another's stories enough and we listen before we speak, by the way. We listen in on one another's stories enough so that we know when the words that are needed in that situation with another person that we're in communion with, that it's a word that is to encourage or is to, maybe I need to sort of inspire them, I need to help them, I need to lift them. Sometimes the word is I need to sort of push a little bit because there's something they're blind to and they need the salve of Jesus in their eyes. Our interactions are meant to be reflective of this same pattern. Spiritual direction its what we do. It's why we articulate the importance of what? Being in community groups. Because being in relationship with one another is how we grow up. The hard work of love, Jesus's hard work of love among us, and now our hard work of love among one another. This past week, uh, Stacey and I listened to an interview that Krista Tippett did with Elaine de Botton, and I'm sure I just butchered that French name, so my apologies. But it was titled, The Hard Work of Love... In uh, the hard work of love and relationships. And if you don't know him, he was the author of that sort of famous New York Times article. I think I even shared it a couple of years ago. You know, why you will marry the wrong person, right? Yeah. If you ever saw it, if you haven't seen it, go back and read it. And it's good for everyone to read, singles as well. Uh, because the point is just simply this I will marry the wrong person because I'm the wrong person. I'm the wrong person. I bring my own brand of craziness into my marriage you bring your own brand of craziness into your personal relationships and we have all brought that brand of craziness into the church and Jesus will speak to us very particularly about these kinds of things it's a beautiful space in this in this particular interview in which he says just very simply that we're accustomed to entering relationships and we think that compatibility is the soil out of which love is grown. And he says, actually, it's the opposite. A more truthful statement would be that compatibility is born of the work of love, not the other way around. Hold on to that because you need it in the church. Jesus has loved you. He has done the hard work of love among us. And he invites us in the space of experiencing his love for us, the real forgiveness of our sins, the real gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we would just find ourselves willing to take a next hard step of love in one another's lives, in our own stories. How do you need to recall the piercing gaze of Jesus on your life this morning? How do we need to recall the piercing gaze of Jesus on our church community, and this place, and in this city? What does he see when he looks at you? What does he see when he looks on us? What does he perceive of our complex story? Where is he happy? Where does he say, that's just so beautiful? And what does he see that he would say, that's just not so beautiful? Buy gold from me. Buy the linen from me. Buy the salve from me. What pain, what fear, what compromise, what does he see in our lives? And how is he knocking and speaking? And will we be persons, will we be a community that hears his voice as a voice of love and we let him in? You just have that beautiful moment when, when you just think, okay, I, I need to stop and I need the vulnerability of a life with him that he offers and that he extends to me and to us. What is he saying to us this morning? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these letters that you've left the church that describe an array of struggle that is reflective of our own struggles we have brought our crazy brokenness into our relationship with you. And we thank you that even in the midst of difficulty, you persevere in love with us. So meet us as we think about the meaning of this for our lives this morning. Would you fill us with hope and would you push on us in all the right places so that we open the door and we invite you in and we sit and we eat in a space of vulnerable fellowship. So meet us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.